Well, when I was a kid, one of the jobs that I had, and I don't know how your family was, but uh, my family, we all had jobs, and that has to happen when you have nine kids growing up in the same home. Everybody had chores to do, and one of my chores that I absolutely hated was dealing with chickens. Now, I know Miss Jones loves them. But uh, President Ballard did not love dealing with chickens. I have told Miss Jones that my two favorite days of chickens was the day we got new chicks because they were cute and the day we butchered so that I could eat. Uh, but everywhere in between, I did not care so much for dealing with the chickens. Now, we really did not raise too many chickens for eating. Uh, we did a few and we would, we would kind of plan that. But most of our chickens, what we did is we raised them for the eggs and we would use the eggs. In fact, uh, we became so good at it, or I became so good at this job, it was my job and I had to learn the job. And I became so good at it that I actually was able to exceed my mother's needs for eggs. And so I was able to sell eggs to the neighbors and that was my first, one of my first uh, uh, experiences in running an entrepreneurial business, all right? So it was my idea and I put it out there and I sold eggs to all those people, and so that was kind of fun. But I actually did not like dealing with the chickens. And, and I, I just didn't like them. They were dirty. In fact, I'd rather deal with pigs than with chickens, quite frankly. And uh, I, I didn't like it. They would sneak up behind you, the roosters would, and they'd flog me and scratch my leg, if you don't know what flogging is. And so, uh, and it's painful. And I didn't like that. And, and I, there were just all kinds of things. I didn't like going out in the winter when their water had froze and getting them fresh water. I just didn't like dealing with the chickens. And so my dad was forever trying to find ways to get me engaged to enjoy my work. And so I remember one particular year, we were gathering together and we were going to go get some new chicks for the new year. And uh, we went to, to go pick those out. And dad came up with this idea. He said, I'm going to let Mark pick a chicken for a pet. And so Mark is going to have one chicken that is his pet. Now, we raised Rhode Island Reds, if you know anything about that. And one of the reasons that we did that was because Rhode Island Reds produced uh, some pretty good eggs. And uh, they were very tasty. In fact, we had a lot of double yolks and all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool. And so that's what we raised. But, you know, I didn't like them, so I definitely was going to pick something else. And so we get there, and I'm looking at all these chicks, and I decide I like this one particular chick. And uh, he, we, we na I named him. I never named chickens because I didn't like chickens. But I named this one, and I named him Dominic because he was a Dominic or a Dominecker, depending on where you come from, which you call that uh, particular breed of chicken. And so I got Dominic, and I brought him home with all the other little chicks, and this was really cool. And he was my special chicken. And, and believe it or not, as much as the only thing I really ever liked was dogs and horses, I began to like Dominic. And it began to be the joy of my life when I would go out uh, to take care of the chickens. I would see Dominic and I'd pick him up and I'd pet him like, a, like, a, you know, like if he was a dog or something. And I, I, I actually grew to love Dominic. And he was just a special chicken to me. The problem was he was different than all the other chickens. He was not like the others. He did things differently. He definitely looked different. And he certainly, since he was a boy, was not going to be producing any eggs for us either. But he was just a different chicken. And it wasn't long after they had grown. When they were little, they were fine. But as they grew, the Rhode Island Reds began to hate 
dominant. Now how I discovered that fact is one morning I went out and I knew something was wrong with Dominic because he was missing a bunch of feathers and there was a bald spot on him like this that was not there the day before. And what had happened is all the other chickens had gathered around and I didn't know it at the time until I caught them. I started an investigative process, but they would all gather around Dominic and they would peck at him and pull out his feathers. And so I, 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 was, I was just upset. It made me hate the Rhode Island Reds more. In fact, I wanted to peck on them a little bit. I wanted to hurry butcher day. I wanted to do all kinds of things, but my parents would not allow me to do that. But instead what we did is we took Dominic and we separated him from all of them and we let him heal up. And, and I did some extra things to help him heal and he got all healed up and, and he got all of his feathers back and he was doing good and he was getting bigger. And now I thought, well, he's bigger and he's stronger and he's a rooster and he can stand up to the only two roosters we had in the Rhode Island Reds, all the rest of them were hens. And so I said, it's okay now, we'll put him back in there. And so we put him back in and about a week went by and I came out one morning and the bald spot was not like that. It covered most of his back and he was dead. They had pecked him to death and killed my Dominic. I was not a happy camper. I was very upset. In fact, I went to my mother and I said, that's it. I want to butcher them all today. <laughs> and she would not allow me to do that. But I learned some lessons from Dominic. All these years later, I hate to say it, but I have seen in groups of people the Dominic effect. I have seen it in families who have ostracized a member of their family because they were different or thought different or, or maybe didn't have the abilities that the rest of the family did. I've seen it in workplaces where somebody was different maybe because of their, maybe their size, maybe their color, maybe it was their abilities, maybe it was just the, the way they looked at the world and things they thought. And so people began to talk bad about them and they began to peck at them and find little ways to, to get their digs into those people. Sadly, I've seen it in the church of God where it should never be the case. But I've seen in churches where, where a few people or maybe just one person begin to, to, to just because they didn't know any better, because they, people didn't accept them where they were at to, to teach them and take them where God wanted them to be, but instead they began to quietly talk about them. Now usually in church we do it in the form of prayer requests. That is our way of gossiping. Well, you really need to be praying for so-and-so, let me tell you. And, and, and that sounds spiritual, but in reality, we're gossiping. And then it becomes a bigger thing where pretty soon everybody is thinking bad about this person. And then people begin to get their little digs in, and they start pecking on them. And sometimes they peck on them so hard that they walk away from the church. And occasionally it's so bad that they completely walk away from ever going to church. And I've seen the Dominic effect at work. In fact, I tell you, we are in danger of the Dominic effect anywhere there is a group of people, even in a Christian college. Now, we're supposed to be those who really 
care about the Word of God. Whether we're, we're laymen and working in business or in Christian counseling or Christian education or whether we're in the pastoral ministry, we're supposed to be those that are leaders, those who, who know and care about people. And, and I mean, we're not only building the mind of a scholar, but the heart of a shepherd. And we're supposed to be those who exhibit this loving care. But yet, even in Christian college settings, I have seen this take place, the Dominic effect. And so my question for us today is this, how can we avoid the Dominic effect? I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians in chapter 4. This chapter has so much good practical information about it that if we will put everything in this chapter into practice in our lives, we'll avoid the Dominic effect. We'll avoid being part <coughs> of or being like those Red, those Rhode Island Reds that were, were picking and pecking on the Dominic. We will avoid doing that in, in the lives of other people if we just put this into practice in our lives, in, the, in our churches, in our families, and yes, even here at Northeastern Baptist College, if we will put these principles into practice. In fact, in the very first paragraph, he talks about the unity of the Spirit. He tells us to walk worthy of the calling with which we're called but then he, he talks about doing that with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, verse 3, in the bond of peace. And he talks about why, because there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. And then he begins in verse 7 and goes down through verse 16 to talk about the, the role of spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts can be something that causes us to, to, to just unite around a specific gift and, and then not like others who don't have that same gift. Or it can be something that is used the way God intended, and that is to use our gift as part of a body of believers who encourage and edify one another and build one another up for the building up of the saints and for the work of the ministry. And that's the, the decision that, that we need to come to, that we use our gifts, that we use the spiritual gifts, the, the personality, the talents that God has given us as a member of a body, as a member of a body who functions together for the glory of God and the good of the body. But then beginning in verse 17 and going through verse 24, what we find is he's saying, listen, we have a new man. We have a new nature that Christ gave us at the point of trusting him. And we need to put off the old man because that old man is still with us. And then those temptations to act like the world are still with us. And we need to put that off. And instead, we need to put on the new man and be, uh, let, let the Holy Spirit rule in our lives and guide us and, and lead us and produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And then finally, in the last paragraph in verses 25 to verse 32, he begins to give us a series of some contrast. Don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. All of which help us to stay in line to not experience the Dominic effect. All of them are wonderful, but for time, I'm just going to focus on the last contrast, which happens in the final two verses of the chapter. So look there with me as we look at God's Word together. Verse 31 of chapter 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In these two verses, we have his final contrast of the chapter. And in doing this, he tells us two things that I want you to remember this morning that will help you to avoid being a part of the Dominect effect. The first one of those is there are some things we must put off. He tells us to put away certain things. In fact, in verse 32, he says, let all, and then he lists some things. And look towards the end of the verse, he says, be put away from you. So he tells us, this is what you need to stop doing. These are things you need to avoid. You need to take these aspects that flow forth from the old man, from our human nature that has been redeemed if you've trusted Christ, but you still have the old man on your back, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And it's easy to give in to the ways of the old man. But Paul is saying, listen, you need to put these off. You need to put these away. You need to ignore these. You need to set them aside and not let your life be characterized by these things. What are they? We see similarities in some of the terms. The first one he says is to let all bitterness be put away from you. Then he says, let all wrath be put away from you. And then he says, let all anger be put away from you. Folks, those are three things that we all have to deal with. There are, those are three things that all of us are faced with in our life. In fact, earlier in the chapter, he tells us to be angry and sin not, because anger happens. Anger is an emotion that comes upon us, sometimes because of our own doing, but many times it's just circumstantial. Something happens and we feel that emotion of anger that comes inside. Uh, Thayer actually makes a distinction between anger and wrath here by saying that that, that, that anger is typically builds over time. It, it, it kind of grows, whereas wrath typically comes in a moment and we act out on it very quickly. But the idea of these three words are so important for us to grapple with, and we need to understand that though that is natural to us in our human flesh, that those are things that now that you have trusted Christ, God has empowered you to put those away through the power of His Spirit, and we need to put them away. Generally speaking, it helps me to think of them in these terms. When I think of anger, I think of that, that those things that happen in life that build that, that passion of, I don't like this. And sometimes it, it's more intense, and sometimes it's less intense, but there's that, that emotion that is there. But when I internalize it, it turns into bitterness. Folks, I got to tell you that I have met a lot of bitter people in my life. And I've met a lot of bitter people at church. And they're people who, when they come to church, they put a smile on and act like everything's okay. But as soon as you really get to know them a little bit, man, they're holding bitterness from things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and longer. One particular person I think of that I, I dealt with had been holding bitterness about a, a, what, I, what most of us would consider a small issue for over 40 years. And just let it eat them inside. 
bitterness and helps me to think of that as anger that is turned inward, that, that, that I just take it in on myself and I, I, I try to hide it, but inside I haven't dealt with that issue and, and so I become bitter towards a person. And I think that I, am, that, that I am punishing them by holding on to it when in reality I'm punishing myself and everybody else around me. Because the bitterness that has overtaken my life shades everything I see. And it can cause health problems. And it certainly causes spiritual health problems. People can miss out on the joy of what God is doing in a situation to, but when everybody else is rejoicing, they can, they, they can not be rejoicing because they have some bitterness there that doesn't even allow them to see it. A particular man that I pastored several years ago had been carrying bitterness for over 40 years, as I mentioned, and I saw that coming forth over and over and over again. I, it didn't matter what happened. Didn't matter. I mean, if, if somebody gave him ten million dollars, he he would still be upset about it. He was just one of those guys. He had he he had moved to that place of just letting bitterness overtake his life. Wrath, on the other hand, is is when we exercise it externally. And, and as, as I said, Thayer makes a good point that anger typically happens over time, but, but wrath, it may be because anger has been building up, maybe because of some bitterness in our life, or maybe just in a moment something happens and we're passionate about it and we react. And it's external, bitterness internal, anger turned inward, wrath, anger turned outward at, at the situation or at a person or at an event. This is why we see road rage so much today. This is the exa an example of that. But there are many ways that this wrath comes out. And he tells us, listen, put anger and wrath and bitterness, put it away from you. But notice the next one, it said that word in the New King James, clamor. You may have a different translation, but what is it that we're talking about? We talk about clamoring. I kind of know that word a little bit just from the English language because my dad used to use it sometimes. But it's not a word that is commonly used today. But the word clamor means to be crying out. It means to be, to be upset and, and expressing it uh, in, in a loud way and, and just continual way, just continually complaining, continually arguing. Uh, folks, we live in a society that has adopted this as a good thing. I, I mean, people all the time are talking about protesters and, and, and how great it is that they're going to protest this issue and do it many times in, a, in, a, in an angry way. And, and they're crying out in a negative way, and that's what the idea means. And then the next one he, he tells us to put away is, is evil speaking. Let that be put away from you. What is it that we're talking about? Really, we're talking about slander. This is when, when somebody offends you, and instead of following Matthew 18 and going to that person one-on-one -on -one and talking about it and working it out, we go tell other people about it. And we're speaking evil of someone else. We are damaging someone else's character by talking to other people about an offense instead of going to the person who offended us and working it out. That's what it means to speak evil. 
Listen, that has become commonplace even in the church, and it is sin. Make it clear. I don't care if we call it gossip or if we call it evil speaking or if we try to cover it up and call it gossip. When we are doing damage, we are doing damage to the character of another person by talking to someone else about them. And we have not even went and tried to work it out between the two of us. That is exactly what this is telling us not to do. Do not do it. Now, folks, none of us like somebody talking bad about us. We don't like it. But we certainly fall in, every one of us at times have fallen in to talking bad about someone else. And he's telling us, put it away. Don't let this be a part of your life. Those of you that are going to be pastors, you will deal with this your entire ministry. People talking bad about one another. People repeating things that they had heard. And folks, we have more trouble with this today than probably any time in history because it happens so rapidly and so easily on Facebook and Twitter. Those are wonderful tools that we can use. But folks, people go on the attack of somebody that they have never met, that has never done anything to offend them personally, that they have never had a conversation with them about, did you do this? Did you say this? And they just go on an attack of them, and, and it just becomes a rampant thing that has moved out there. Listen, I have come to expect it in the world. I expect it on the nightly news. I expect it on blogs. I expect it in newspapers. But, folks, I will never, never satis be satisfied in expecting it from the children of God. Because it's wrong. And it's sin. And it shouldn't happen. And, and I have personal friends whose reputations and lives have been ruined because of people doing this, and we've taken it outside the walls of the church, and we do it on the web. And people don't even know them. Last week, our, I was talking to our chapel, one of our chapel speakers, and he was telling me about a particular man that he had heard negative things about, and then when he got to know him, how different it really was with that person. And it's because we just latch on to it and we speak evil of people and it's wrong. And then he says, put these away from us. And then he adds at the end of verse 31, with all malice, which is intentionally trying to do harm to someone. So it moves beyond just slandering because in the moment it was cool to, to be part of the group that was slamming this guy. But it means an intentional malice to try to ruin someone. And he says, put it away from you. I tell Mrs. Ballard fairly regularly, Cindy, it's a good thing you didn't know me a year earlier. <laughs> it's a good thing. She, she used to tell me that she begged her parents to be able to go to the Christian school I went to from the time she was in junior high. And I said, praise God you didn't. You'd have never married me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because I did not heed this verse I was quick tempered I was angry sometimes I would internalize it most of the time it would come out in wrath 
I was unmerciful. I was unloving. And I was re always ready for a fight. I was opinionated and knew that my opinion was right, whether anybody else thought so or not. And I was ready to go to fist fight for it. I'll never forget, uh, I've told you before that about our my, my principal for many years, from second grade till ninth through ninth grade, he was my principal and every about every month he sends us a check for $10. And I've told you before, it's because he, he looks and says, Lord, <laughs> I can't believe that that kid ever even graduated high school, much less anything else. I've got to support this work. One of the reasons is because I spent time in his office uh, quite often. I remember one day I was out on the playground. I was in sixth grade, and uh, I, I was playing basketball with a guy that I considered one of my friends, and he was in eighth grade. And um, we were playing basketball, and uh, he said I fouled him as, I, as he was going up for the shot. And I said, no, I didn't. And he grabbed the, the basketball, and he just threw it at him and says, you fouled me. And, and guys, this is just who Mark was at that time, I'm, I, and I'm not proud of it. But I just started walking towards him. And when I got about that many steps, he dropped the basketball and started backing up. And I kept walking. And he got all the way to the wall, and I went smack. And I busted him right in the nose. He hit his head against the wall, and he just kind of, stood there holding his nose with it bleeding and he couldn't believe that I did that just over that about 10 seconds later I felt a previous teacher who was not my teacher that year but happened to have experienced me many years and she was saw it happen and I experienced uh, that nerve right there as she grabbed me by that nerve in my neck and just hauled me to the principal's office with my friend Alan in tow. And we got in, and he was just bleeding everywhere. And I got it stopped, and I had to face the consequences of my action. Folks, there's nothing pleasing to God about our anger, whether it turns bitter internally or whether we act out as I did that day to Alan in a wrathful way. There's nothing pleasing to God about us standing and yelling, we want our way. There is nothing pleasing to God about us talking bad about another brother or sister in Christ. It is sin and it is wrong. And just like God changed me, you need to ask him to change you when you struggle with those issues. But not only must we put away things if we're gonna avoid the Dominect effect, we also must practice some things. And he only gives us three things in this particular text, but if we can do these three things, it'll radically alter the way we deal with life. Look in verse 32, he says, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So he gives us three things. He says, be kind. I have a niece named Gina. He used to look at me and say, be nice, Uncle Mark, be nice. And that's what he's telling us. Be nice, be kind, be good towards people. 
In the, in the moment when, when somebody upsets you, think about a way that you can be kind to them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who, who despitefully use you and those who persecute you. And Jesus himself demonstrated that fact as he was hanging on the cross after being falsely accused, after being beaten within an inch of his life, and then, and then having been nailed to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He was kind in the face of the opposition that came his way. And Paul says, listen, that's what you need to do. You need to put on kindness. You need to be nice. You need to be good to one another. You need to be caring towards one another, which moves us to number two when he says to be tender-hearted. He tells us to, to have a heart that is tender towards other people. It is the idea of caring for others. It is the idea of, of, of wanting what is best for other people. You want to know what it means to be tenderhearted? Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as he describes what love does. It's patient and kind and gentle and so forth. We, we, we bear with one another. In fact, earlier in this chapter, he tells them to bear with one another in love. And that's what kindness or tenderheartedness does. We are tender towards the Lord first and towards people around us next. In fact, John, in his epistle, tells us that if we say that we love God and we hate our brother, we're a liar. Listen, our, our, our tender heart towards God will always, always, always lead to a tender heart towards other people. Picture a triangle with me for a minute. The closer we get to God... Say you're on this side of the triangle and the rest of your group, whether it's your church or your job or this school or wherever you go throughout life is on this other side of believers. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to God's people. The further you move up that triangle and getting closer to God at the top, the closer you become to God's people. And the more tenderhearted and the more caring you are to them. The, the further you are, from loving God's people, the further you are from God himself. If you have a tender heart towards the Lord Jesus, you will have a tender heart towards his people, his children, your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he says, and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness. It's something we all want. It's something we all need. And it's something we're reluctant to give. Let's just be honest. We're not alone. Remember in Matthew 18, after Jesus had talked about going to your brother if he's offended you and working it out, he, he then talks to Peter and Peter says, well, well, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And he says, no, 70 times 7. And the point that Jesus was making is don't keep a list of all 490 times. It was you forgive him over and over. And then Jesus tells the story of a man who owed the king so much. And the king said, you must pay up or I'll throw you in prison. And, and he owed him so much he could never repay it. But the king forgave him in mercy. And the man went out and he found somebody who owed him about 37 bucks in our money. After being forgiven of 
such an extraordinary amount he could never pay it back in his lifetime. And he says, you pay me now or I'll throw you in prison. And the man didn't have it, and so he threw him in prison. And word got back to the king, and the king came and said, what are you doing after I've forgiven you so much? Listen, notice what the text says. Forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Can I tell you a secret about forgiveness? You'll never truly forgive if you wait till they deserve it. Because when someone has offended you, they don't deserve your forgiveness. You'll never forgive if you wait till they earn it. How many times have we said that? Well, when they apologize, I might forgive them. And then when they apologize, well, that wasn't a sincere apology. When they grovel enough, maybe I'll forgive them. Listen, if you wait till they deserve it or they earn it, you'll never forgive. Here's the secret to being able to forgive quickly. And that is when you understand how much you've been forgiven. And when you base your forgiveness of other people on God's forgiveness of you, you'll be able to forgive. And if you forgive, you will not peck other believers. And you will not try to incite them. And you will not be a part of the Dominic effect. I rarely ever heard my dad say he was sorry for anything. We lived in a different time. And in the day and time that I grew up, a man just simply didn't do that very much. A man was big and bold, strong, and that was my daddy. My dad um, didn't lose his temper a lot, but when he did, you didn't want to be around. And I probably three times in my life did I ever remember hearing my dad say he was sorry but there was one time that I will never forget as long as I live and it's something that God began to use in my life as a teenager in junior high to grab my attention about this issue we were at church and at that time our church was Growing, it was, a, it was a large church for Colorado. We had over 300 in attendance. We had a big, big sanctuary and then a big balcony that was always full. And we always sat on the back row of the first floor. And we came to church and we were there for the worship and the preaching. And once a month we, we had Lord's Supper. We would have communion and we would be there for that. And as soon as the amen was over, Dad was out the door. That's just the way it was. And we hurried to get out there pretty quickly ourselves. And Dad didn't have a lot of relationships in his life. He was a, much of a loner. But I'll never forget one Sunday in particular. We were going to have Lord's Supper that day, communion that day, and, and our pastor preached on the Lord's Supper. And he preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and how that the church at Corinth had allowed bitterness and anger and division among brothers and sisters in Christ be a problem. So much so that in chapter 11, 
Paul says what you're doing when you come together is not really even the Lord's Supper. And the fact of the matter is, is when you are eating and drinking the Lord's Supper, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And then the pastor did something different. We always had an invitation where people could come and kneel and pray and all that kind of stuff or talk to the pastor if they, somebody wasn't saved, they'd come and learn how to be saved and that kind of stuff at the end of our service. But that particular day, our pastor did something different. His name was Bill. And Bill, Pastor Bill stood up and he said, Now listen, if you have anger, bitterness, gossip, any of those things in your life towards another brother or sister in this building, do not take the Lord's Supper until you make it right. And then he gave the invitation. And the music's playing and we're singing. And I looked up at my dad as I saw my dad do something I'd never seen before. He stepped out in the aisle and he went out the back door and he went through another door and he walked all the way down the aisle to the very front of the church to somebody sitting over on this side, a man that we all knew. And we knew my dad had been talking bad about him. And we knew that my dad was angry at him and he was bitter towards him. And he was avoiding him so he didn't become wrathful. And I saw my dad humble himself and walk up to that man and say, brother, I gotta talk to you. I have done you wrong. And I saw two grown men who in that day, this didn't happen much that you saw a grown man like this crying. And I saw them hug each other and begin to cry as they got right with one another and with God. And it taught me something. It taught me that no matter how prideful or how arrogant you may get, that if you will tender your heart to God, He will change your relationships. Father, I come before you. And God, I ask that today would be a watershed day in each of our lives. Father, that today we would decide that we're not going to be part of the Dominic effect. But Father, that we are going to put into practice the putting off of anger and wrath and malice and bitterness. Father, that we're not going to speak evil of other people. Father, we're going to put that off. And instead, what we're going to put on is we're going to put on kindness and tenderheartedness. And we're going to be quick to forgive when people hurt us. Father, we do it not because they earn it or deserve it. Father, we do it not because we're great. We do it because of what we sang earlier. Because your son, Jesus, suffered the wrath of God upon sin for us. He bore the cost of our forgiveness. He paid the price. And then he offered and extended that forgiveness to us. And so, Father, we, in these moments, look to you. Help us. Help us, Lord. 
Help us to not be part of the dominator pack. But Father, help us to live in such a way that they'll know that we're Christians by our love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.